Welcome to Be Your Own Muse, a podcast presentation of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. I'm Floyd Hall. In this conversation, I chat with Dr. Andrea Barnwell Brownlee and Melissa Messina, co-curators of the exhibition Mildred Thompson, The Atlanta Years, 1986 through 2003 on display from September 11th through December 7th, 2019. When did the idea for this exhibition first become a thing in the world? When, when did you all first start talking about Mildred Thompson and bringing this exhibition to Spelman? So it was about two and a half years ago. We were at Howard University and Melissa just made a presentation on Mildred's life and work and I asked if she was open to having a series of conversations that I wasn't ready to um, organize a show right away but I wanted to know if she was willing to hear more if she was willing to come to the table and she enthusiastically said yes and we just sort of kept in in touch and September 11th, you will see the incredible fruits of this labor. So one of the things that I think is interesting is that for a lot of people, um, Mildred Thompson represents a few different things um, in terms of her, her legacy in this city and, and beyond. So um, would you say some, some, some words about your earliest memories of Mildred Thompson in terms of either what you remember, what you heard, uh, what you read, what you saw. What are some of those earliest remembrances of Mildred Thompson and her work? Well, I'll delve into a personal story then. Um, I was all of 18. It was my first day at the Atlanta College of Art and Design and I showed up and the registrar promptly pulled me aside and said, I'm so sorry Melissa but we've lost all of your registration paperwork. We had a computer glitch, we have you in the system, you are enrolled but we don't have you down for any classes. And you know, I'm by myself in a big city for the first time, first day of college and I thought, oh my gosh, what, what are we going to do? And she said, but I'm, 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 I'm going to make it up to you. She said, I'm gonna put you in a class that there is a waiting list a mile long to get into and you can't ever tell anybody that, you, that I bumped you to the top of the list, but it's the only way I feel like I can make this up to you. It's Mildred Thompson's course, Making the Invisible Visible. It's a drawing class. Are you open to this? I don't know who Mildred Thompson is. I don't know if I'm an abstract artist. I, don't, I, I just go, leap into the void and I sit in her class all of the students are waiting for her to make her grand entrance. And here comes this woman in a purple tracksuit with a purple afro. And she says, today we're going to talk about physics. <laughs> so you can imagine how disorienting that whole experience was. But what I did not know is that that was going to be the first day that would really change the, the course of my life. I mean, I, I have people ask me all the time, why are you championing this work? Why are you the curator for the estate? And my answer is always that Mildred Thompson saved my life, changed my life, 
and I owe it to her. Simple as that. So that's, that's my first recollection of Mildred. And she would come into the class and she would give a lecture, maybe about a half an hour, and, and it was always something quite um, connected to scientific methodology, something going on. Um, she was obsessed with Hale-Bopp. I don't know if y'all, you're probably, Floyd's looking at me like, I don't know what that is. But there was a comet that was coming to, to Earth in the, in the 90s, and she was obsessed with this. So we would have a conversation about comets and cosmology and universal energy and patterns in the in the world and the rotation of the planets and the sound of the planets. And then we'd, we'd work for the rest of the course. We'd draw, we'd paint, we'd do performances, whatever medium we wanted. And she would give the most glorious critiques. And I was saying to Andrea earlier, it's too bad we didn't have iPhones back in the day because I'm pretty sure she'd be a viral internet sensation with her fantastic course lectures and her brilliant guidance into helping us all understand the language of abstraction and making it something personal for us. So as young artists, we were able to really find a way to express ourselves and really broaden our thinking about who we were as artists in the world. Andrea? Well, you know, unfortunately, I never had the pleasure of meeting her or working with her. But my earliest recollection is moving to Atlanta in 2001 and people having this conversation about this incredible force of nature named Mildred Thompson, who at that time was working at the Atlanta College of Art, and how she had this incredible teaching practice that students could not get enough of. They really genuinely would dive into her courses and of course, when I left Spelman as, as a student, she had not you know, yet returned to the US, but the earliest recollections were, you have to come to the studio, you have to come you know, see these archives, and you have to really spend time with this work because it has been under-discussed. And she's this incredible figure for this city. So although I never met her, there were so many conversations on this campus about her and the indelible impact that, that she made. And so as we've been looking through archival material and looking at so many of the, um, the items that are part of the, the estate and to come across photographs of her teaching and seeing her practice and how she would document her students and how she took photographs of them making work and writing about the students making work was one of those things that really connected me to her. It was the classrooms in the Giles studios on the fourth floor of Giles Hall that really underscored that she was committed to not only teaching but documenting and tracing the importance of what she was doing here on this campus and also at Morehouse. But there was something really dynamic about her classrooms that I wish we could find a way to, to bottle and share because certainly the college has an extraordinary history of teaching art, teaching art history, but there was something about her that drove people, you know, to revisit what her offerings were again and again. So my earliest re re reflections were 
have you had the pleasure? You know, have you had the opportunity? Sorts of questions. But I should also say that there were many people that said, wow, she is a pistol. She is one of those people that she doesn't mince words. She's very, very serious about her craft. She's very serious about her her practice and it's unwavering. She didn't back down from a fight, if you will. She was one of those people that spoke her mind that was going to um, really articulate how she was feeling about any given topic on any any given day. Um, in terms of early reflections, you know, when Dr. Janetta Cole, who was president at that time, brought her you know, back to, to the U.S., it was the source of incredible pride, you know, to be able to bring someone from her hometown, which is Jacksonville, to Atlanta to teach students in ways that differed from anything else they'd ever experienced and focus on this idea of making what is invisible visible within her artistic practice through things like basic drawing classes and introducing them to new ways of thinking and seeing the world was something that was, you know, a lot of pride was centered around that. So my earliest reflections and recollections are about this extraordinary force of nature. So what does it mean for you, you know, as the leader of the institution, to be able to make space for Mildred at this point in time? As an artist who has been overlooked and maybe not researched or explored or, or, or studied as much as she probably has deserved, what does it mean to be able to bring her back to Spelman in this capacity, in this way, and make space for her to have that moment? There are really multiple dimensions to that question. Last semester, I was working with some students who actually went into the archives here at Spelman and found letters and found correspondence, and it was their first foray into the work. The opportunity to take students to Howard University to the Porter Colloquium several years ago and then hear Melissa's talk about this incredible woman who not only studied at Howard but also came to Spelman who happened to be you know from Florida to give them an opportunity to dive deeper into the work was an incredible opportunity because it allowed them to open up to new possibilities and learn about an artist that they had never seen or heard about. So the first sort of level, if you will, of engagement is giving students multiple opportunities through which to meet and learn more about an artist. So it wasn't exclusively about the work, but it was about different ways that the objects made her whole, if you will. So then there was the opportunity to have conversations with Melissa about our incredible, passionate stance on conducting research and presenting the work of under-researched, under-exhibited, under-resourced artists. Certainly we're proud of our record of presenting works by emerging artists and and mid-career artists, but there's something about the opportunity 
to organize and curate exhibitions about artists who in their lifetime never received the attention in the exhibitions that were certainly warranted, that is our sweet spot. We are committed to our mission in unwavering ways, in very, very passionate ways. But this conversation about figuration versus abstraction and our inability, frankly, to get out of our own way is a problem that we are trying to look at, address, redress, and reverse those trends in ways that are meaningful whenever we can. So the opportunity to bring works together from Georgia collections was something that was also a real priority and something that was really quite, quite irresistible. So looking at this period of time where she was prolific, I mean, the opportunity to work in this extraordinary scale, the opportunity to explore ideas that she had been certainly delving into, but working differently when she got to Atlanta, it, it was something that we were mutually um, committed, to, committed to doing. So to answer your question, there were multiple ways that we were able to engage and enter the work that is enlivened and enriched by certainly archival materials, oral histories that we've been sort of collecting, if you will, in a very informal way um, that allow us to, to dive deeper into to ways and, 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 and through strategies that we are just really, really excited about. And if I could second that excitement on behalf of the estate to say how wonderful it is to be working with Andrea, working with Spellman, um, the Thompson Estate, along with Gallery Lalong in New York, which is, represents the, the work, has been doing a great deal um, the past several years to get the work sort of to every corner of the earth um, with exhibitions in New Orleans and in Berlin and in New York. And we thought, okay, um, when, when we were approached about the exhibition, we thought, okay, Atlanta, right? It's a city where she spent almost 20 years and um, lived and worked, but perhaps didn't have the exhibition record um, that other artists, um, you know, again, deserve and warrant in their lifetime. And so what type of exhibition would we do and with whom if we were doing it in Atlanta and there's really no other museum we'd want to be working with for all of the reasons that were just discussed, that there is a legacy here of providing a platform of visibility for female artists in particular who did not get their due in their lifetime and to think about a space where Howardina Pindell exhibited and Beverly Buchanan exhibited and Marin Hessinger exhibited, et cetera. I mean, just the, the, the the legacy of the exhibition program here uh, is is so rich, and to be added to that is is quite rewarding for us as well. To hear Andrea talk about what she remembers hearing or sort of feeling about Mildred makes me feel like Mildred fit into 2019 as as an artist, as a person in the world. Um, and Melissa, I would love for you to maybe speak on what it's been like to have to you know, sort of bring her into this space, into this current moment in time. Um, you mentioned the gallery uh, that's been very helpful, Gallery Lelong, who's been stewarding that or sort of steering that process. But what, is it, what has it been like for you to try to 
help current audiences connect with someone who at least their energy feels like they're they're already in this day and time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good way to phrase it. She's definitely uh, more of this time than in her lifetime, you know, sort of an artist beyond her, her time. Um, I think the world is, is catching up to her. <laughs> um, and certainly she would think so as well. Again, she, she really understood her place in the world and really thought of herself as a, as a global artist, as a woman of the world as um, an artist working with themes and ideas and concepts that were, in her mind, very universal, kind of using this language of abstraction that she learned and embraced and championed and translating it into uh, interpretations of, of the world around us, of things that we see under a microscope, of things that we see through a telescope, of scientific uh, advancements, uh, medical advancements, things that are very much of the 21st century. When you think of all of the uh, technological and scientific advancements that have been of the past 20 years, I can only imagine if she were still alive right now, the type of work that, that she would be making and the visual vocabulary that would be growing and the pieces that would be getting even bigger and bigger. Um, and she found a way. She was an artist who found a way. She was intrepid. She was always hungry for knowledge and information, always researching, always reading, always traveling. All of that infused her work in a way that I think that's how artists think of themselves now in, in, in such natural terms. And it was really something she fought for. And I think a lot of artists of color fought for and female artists fought for. Um, so I think she would be more comfortable today than ever. And again, I think the world's kind of catching up with her. <laughs> well, I think that Mildred represents um, an ideal that a lot of artists, a lot of emerging artists uh, are striving toward, which is this notion of both a home base, but a, a larger practice. And so I think for a lot of Atlanta-based artists, the idea is that Atlanta is a great place to have a home base in terms of weather and maybe social settings and comfort, um, but there's always the, the want to have your work be everywhere. And so Mildred, I think, was an, an early template of that. Um, say more about, about how she thought about structuring her life in that way and what, what approaches that she took to, to live that out. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, she, let's face it, she never put herself really in the center of things. You know, she left New York in the early 60s, and she moved to Germany and a small town in Germany, south of Cologne, I mean, not even, you know, Berlin, because for her it was always about making the work. And I think a lot of her friends, and, and don't get me wrong, she was in the mix. I mean, I hear stories about dinners she cooked, and James Baldwin is there, and Kate Millett is there, and all of these cultural figures who are making a, a contribution to civil rights and women's rights in the 60s, thinking, you know, saying to her, where, where are you going? Why are you leaving New York, you know? And um, there are equally heartbreaking stories of her speaking about a gallery owner telling her that they would represent her work, but it would be under a different name and she wasn't to, to be present at an opening. Um, there were certainly a few early successes. The Museum of Modern Art um, bought a print, the Brooklyn Museum bought a drawing, and then things very quickly you know, dried up for her. And so again, I think she 
always wanted to put herself in a place where she felt that the work could come first and that she would find a way to make it happen. And so going back to Germany, she was offered a, a, literally a castle free for her to live and work in. Of course, it didn't have any heat <laughs> or air conditioning, but it had rooms upon rooms for her to set up a printmaking studio and a woodworking studio and a painting studio and live. And it's in Konzendorf and Duren and, you know, again, in, in these remote kind of farm town in, in Germany. And I say all this to say um, it wasn't about her being sort of in the geographic or the, the monetary center of the art world. It was about how she could live a life that felt positive to her, where she could have people around her to support her and embrace the work and understand the work, and that she had the literal space to make it. And that took her to a lot of different places in the world, and she enjoyed being in all of those different places because it influenced how she saw the work, how she saw the world, and how she saw herself in it. Um, I don't know if that answered your question, but <laughs> well, well, keep going on that on that on that path because I think that I would love for listeners to know where Atlanta fit on that trajectory of places where she landed and felt good about the work and herself and and all that came with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Atlanta became a place where she found opportunities to teach, which, um, as Andrea described so beautifully, was never separate from her artistic practice. She was at, like, in the core of her DNA, she was an educator. She always had people around her. She was always on. She was always lecturing. She was always teaching, always suggesting books to read. Um, and it didn't matter how talented you were per se, it mattered how dedicated you were. She respected seriousness. As Andrea said, she did not uh, she did not suffer fools. She had no patience for foolishness. It was about a, a dedicated practice, a dedicated purpose. And if you wanted to learn, she was there to, to teach you. And so I think she found a city ripe with students who wanted to hear what she had to say, who were interested in some of the concepts that she was working with in her own practice that she brought to her classroom um, and her courses were challenging there was there was no doubt about it um, I studied with her at the Atlanta College of Art and two courses that have really now become kind of legendary were making the invisible visible and music matters and both courses were about taking a concept whether it's kind of the, the new physics or the history of music and really delving into every layer of what those topics mean, both personally and to, to humankind throughout history. And taking a language of abstraction and using that as a way to interpret this information. And so I think it was a city, again, where she found this, those teaching opportunities and she found young energy that was always something she really responded to. It was also a city where she had an uh, I think it was a 10,000 square foot studio with 20 foot ceilings. I mean, so you can see some of the paintings in this exhibition and the scale of them. You understand that she had space to work. I think she fell in love. I think she had, you know, a dedicated partner who offered her support and stability like she'd never had in her life. And so I think it was a moment of maturity. I think it was a moment of seeing an artist settle into themselves. 
Um, we have some really beautiful footage where she talks about how when she was younger she was kind of overly ambitious and always wanted to have people around her and always needed to be moving to another place. And she settled into herself. This was a place where she felt that she could expand on her artistic practice irrespective of the quote-unquote art world but still have a foot in it. It was still a world she understood and wanted to be a part of, certainly, but um, was a city that was man became allowed her to have a, a life that she could manage and, um, and again, kind of make the work that she wanted to make, and that was of primary importance. Andrea, as this work comes to Atlanta, what are you excited about adding to what people will see in the exhibition? I'm excited for people to walk away with a greater sense of the expanse and scope of the work that she created. Whether it's the works on paper, the paintings, the drawings, I mean, an unbelievable scope. These 30 works demonstrate not only how broad, how broadly she viewed the world, but her incredible efficiency, effectiveness with various mediums. It's really quite remarkable, not just the scale of the work, there's some very intimate works that are featured in the exhibition, but the scale, we were talking earlier today about her understanding of acrylic paint. We were talking about work she did at the Caversham um, studio as an artist and resident. So, if you ask me what I want people to really think about and things they hadn't seen before, it's her understanding of a visual vocabulary that we perhaps didn't think about before. Um, again, if we were to revisit this conversation about figuration versus abstraction, she had a knowledge of not only the history of art, but the history of mediums and the history of what materials can do that far exceeds people's expectations. Um, so that's something that would be very, very important for me to, to think through and to, to talk to people about throughout the course of this exhibition. If I could um, jump on that too and, and maybe even readdress the question you asked about her being an artist in 2019 or, an, or kind of relate to artists now, is her ability to translate these ideas across media. She did not believe in the hierarchy of painting at the top, drawing is lesser than, printmaking is lesser than. She did not believe in describing herself only as a painter or only as a writer even, or musician. I mean, her work translates across media in a way that I think artists today have the ability to really not pigeonhole themselves into one um, title or one genre, um, that she was able to think of a concept and decide whether or not it was best to make pencil drawings or etchings or large-scale sculpture or even sound compositions will be playing in the gallery some of her electronic sound pieces that really connect to the concepts in her work. So again, I think I think younger artists don't delineate between between media necessarily. Some some certainly do, but some are give themselves that freedom and she certainly was beyond her time in this sort of renaissance woman idea of, of how she could translate these ideas. 
Melissa, you mentioned that Mildred had a pretty vast uh, interest in in science and, and, and music also. So I would love for you to maybe talk about how that shows up in her work in this exhibition or or other themes that are present as well? Certainly. Um, Mildred used to always say, everything is everything. And I know that's a very broad quote. But what I believe she meant was that patterns, systems, uh, even vibrations that happen on the macro level are also happening on the micro level, right? that there are some shapes, colors, forms that we all understand um, on a cellular level. That if you look at uh, a, a batch of cells under a microscope, it can look very similar to the cosmos. And to her, that felt like a very sort of spiritual quest of connecting the human body to the universe in which it lives. And she saw abstraction as a language that could translate that. So she was always reading about science, about math, about music as it relates to those patterns and, and systems. Um, she was most interested in her time in Atlanta in what's described as new physics, quantum physics. She has a whole series of paintings about magnetic fields, about string theory, about radiation waves. And so when you think about her place and time in the world and all of the sort of scientific and technological advancements, she's looking at those things as inspiration for her atmospheres, for the imagery that she's making in pencil, in gouache, in oil paint, in sculptures even, and in sound. Um, but to her, that is really what connects us all as human beings, right? That, that the patterns that we find internally are also the things that are in the external world around us. And again, for her, that was really kind of a religion. But the works themselves are not scientific illustrations. She was using that language as a basis from which to make her own personal expressions of, of our world and the world that she um, felt she lived in or was perhaps beyond us, right, were things we can't see, things that we interpret. Um, she was also very interested in philosophies, um, however archaic, I mean, even things like theosophy, you know, all these kind of debunked theories, but, but she would find kind of kernels in all of these different things and, and find a way to kind of really merge them together and marry them and find um, really a symbolic language in abstraction to try to convey some of those ideas. And for her, she wanted people to be able to appreciate the work on a number of levels. If you didn't know anything about string theory, you could still appreciate the, that series as a beautiful colors, shapes, and forms moving energetically across a canvas, that you didn't have to have an intrinsic understanding of quantum physics in order to understand the work that she was making. But that, for her, formed the basis of, from, from which she could expand her own expressions. Mildred Thompson, The Atlanta Years, 1986 through 2003. What do you hope Atlanta re-remembers about Mildred Thompson? I would hope 
that people, especially the students that are still here, she still has many, many students in Atlanta, that we not only reflect upon who she was and what she contributed to in the city, but we reckon with it. You know what I mean? We really, really have conversations about how we respond to, celebrate, research, present, have high regard for, etc. artists when they're here. The fact that this is indeed her first large interdisciplinary exhibition is something that we need to reckon with. This should not have happened so far after we lost an incredible giant. It shouldn't have happened so long after she passed away. So my hope is that these types of exhibitions allow us to move and think differently about artists that are in our midst. Beautifully said. I'm not sure I can second that. Um, I will try. Um, I, I, I think to your point, there there was a legend in the midst of this city for many, many years. And I think that we will honor those who did support her in her lifetime. We have loans from those who purchased a work as early as 1987 when she had just been here a year and those who had purchased perhaps after she passed to help support the estate, right? There's, there certainly are supporters and I want them to have a moment to be um, honored and you know ha- have a moment in the spotlight as well. Um, I think there'll be many people who will have memories about her as a former professor or as an inspiration of some sort or another. And I, I, I love that they're going to come back to the gallery and get to see the work hung and lit and beautifully presented in a way that that they'll reconnect with someone who meant so much to them. But I think to Andrea's point earlier too, I think for young artists, art historians, curators to be, to remind them that the artists are who lead the dialogue of art history. I think all too often curators come up with a, a, a theory and a nice little box that they're trying to fit all of these artists into that's convenient for them. But really it's the artists that write history and it's our job as curators to give them a platform to present the work in the best way, to honor their legacy and their life. And I hope that's what we're able to do here and that people again see that there, there was a legend who lived here and let's, let's take a second look. I think there are a number of African-American women who made abstraction at the same time as the, the, the quote giants that we all read about in our history books and people make magnets and postcards and book bags about. But there were many, many black women working at the same time and making work that was just as important just as integral to the dialogue and we hope that this is one opportunity to show one of them and that that will branch out um, into again a broader understanding of abstraction in this country.